following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. So if you'd turn to the book of Galatians with me, let's look uh, tonight at the first nine verses of the first chapter of Galatians. We're reading from Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is God's word written to God's people. Let's pray as we come to his word tonight. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading, the preaching of your word, that it would not be my words or our words or our interpretation, but it would be your words given through your spirit to our hearts, to the glory and praise of your name. And we pray this in your name. Amen. When we come to this letter, and as we come to this letter that Paul has written to the churches of Galatia, I was thinking about Letter writing. For those of you who don't know, way back when I was young, about 15 years ago or so, uh, there were these things called letters that we would write uh, with pen and paper. We still did that even when I was young. Uh, And I remember that as I was growing up, every Friday, it was my responsibility to write a letter to my grandparents. I would describe to my grandparents what I had done that week. It was a combined lesson in handwriting letter writing and just general good grandsonmanship or something along those lines. And it was uh, sort of uh, humorous because one of my grandparents decided about two weeks ago to mail me two letters that they had in their cabinet file that I had written to them when I was about seven. I think the first thing that struck me is I remember working forever on these letters. My mom would have me at the table and I would just think, man, if I could just get through this letter. Well, these letters are about four lines long now that I come to see them. It's uh, quite shocking. I was thinking as I was doing it, I wonder what my grandchildren will do to write me letters. Will they send me like a Friday tweet? Or uh, will I check into a blog post to see what their week was like? But whatever the medium might be, there are things that make a good letter. 
And I remember being coached in good letter writing. Each paragraph should have three sentences, and you should indent your lines, and you should have a greeting and a conclusion. And there, there, were, there were things to a good letter. And the, the same thing was true in the ancient world. And when Paul's writing letters to the churches, there were certain things that would make for a good letter, certain stylistic marks. And, and we're very used to seeing them in the letters of Paul. If you think through the different letters that Paul wrote, you'll realize he usually begins by introducing himself. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. And, and he usually then addresses his audience to the churches of Galatia or Ephesus or, or, or to the Christians in uh, these, these areas. And then usually in, in Paul's gospels, or, or in his letters, excuse me, after uh, telling who's writing it and who it's written to, he'll then go on to give a declaration of thanks and praise and prayer. He'll say something like, I always thank my God and my Father for you. Or I give thanks for you and I pray for you at every remembrance of you. And, and Paul gives his, his audience, the, the recipients of his letter, uh, some, some indication of how he's praying for them and of his thankfulness for him. In fact, that happens in every letter uh, after the initial greeting of, of Paul, except Galatians, not Galatians. If you look at Galatians and you, you look at the, the, the introduction to Galatians, we have uh, an indication of who the letter's from, Paul. We have an indication of who it's to, to the churches of Galatia. We have the standard grace to you and peace from God our Father. But after that, we don't get any, um, I give thanks to you, I'm praying for you. Paul just jumps in right away with, I am astonished at you. You can imagine Paul sitting here, okay, I've got to get this greeting out of the way so that I can say, Galatians, what in the world are you doing? What are you thinking? And it's, it's a, a shocking start, particularly when you compare the letter to the Galatians to all of the other letters that, that Paul's writing. Rather than even the church of, of Corinth. And if you know anything about the church of Corinth, that city was uh, a city and a church full of shocking immorality. And we looked at the letter in, in our senior high Sunday school this morning. And even there, Paul starts with, I give thanks to you. Here, no, it is, I am astonished at you. Apparently, the situation that the Galatian church is facing is so shocking to Paul, so urgent that he abandons his typical letter-writing etiquette to jump in with a call and a harsh rebuke to the church in Galatia. And, and it is an urgent situation. Because as Paul quickly reveals, his concern here is a concern for the Galatians' salvation. It's a concern for the message of the gospel. It's a concern that the grace of Christ that was preached to them is being exchanged for a distorted or different gospel. And as Paul says, a distorted gospel, a different gospel, is really no gospel at all. So what's going on here? As we come to the situation in, in Galatia here, what is this distorted gospel? What's the background here to, to Paul's uh, abandonment of letter-writing etiquette uh, in this, this uh, astonishing, astonished introduction here? I think our, letter, uh, our understanding of this letter to the Galatians really hinges on our understanding of what's going on in the churches uh, that Paul is writing to. Well, as we go through, we'll see this in more detail, but as just a brief introduction, we can say that the controversy in the Galatian churches stemmed from certain Jewish Christians. Uh, these, these were, these were uh, Jews who proclaimed Christ, um, and they were, they were Jews that were talking to Gentile converts. So you divide the church into two parts. You have Jewish Christians talking to Gentiles, non-Jews, who had converted to Christianity. And the message from these Jewish Christians was, look, 
This is great that you've accepted Christ. But new Gentile Christians, if you really want to be acceptable to God, yes, you should believe in Christ, but you also need to obey God's law. And by God's law, they meant the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. And so what was uh, being communicated was, sure, great, you believe in Christ. Now, you should be circumcised, and there are some dietary rules you need to keep, and there's some festivals and, and feasts that you need to observe, and the Mosaic Law was being added on to these, these Galatian Christians. These uh, Judaizers, as they're sometimes referred to, um, certainly uh, themselves were willing to accept the Messiah, but it was a Messiah plus, a Messiah plus the law of God that was being preached. Now, as part of the challenge, these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians, n- not only distorting the gospel, but there seems to be an implicit attack as well on the character of Paul. Paul's the one who originally preached this gospel, and there seems to be a, a, an attack on, on Paul's ministry. See, of course, Paul, an apostle, but Paul wasn't one of the original twelve, these teachers seem to be saying. Paul, Paul shows up and, and claims to be an apostle, but he came later. He wasn't there with Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus during Jesus' ministry. So, uh, as these teachers seem to say, he's a guy who popped up, decided to preach Christ that's very admirable, but he's gotten it a bit wrong along the way. And so, here's Paul in a situation where his ministry is being attacked, and as a result, the gospel itself is being attacked. And I think, uh, although we'll certainly come back to more from these Judaizers later in the book, that will be enough to at least give us some background as we get into the first section of, of Galatians. So, here we have Paul. And he is going to spend the first verses that we're looking at tonight answering these two challenges. Defending first his ministry as an apostle sent by God through Jesus Christ. And second, the gospel that he is preaching. So look with me right in the first verse here. From the very first words of this epistle, Paul is making an argument. Paul is arguing for something. He's defending something right from the very beginning. Uh, Many of you have read other of Paul's letters, and you know that he often starts by saying, Paul, an apostle. He introduces himself. But, but here, he quickly changes from merely introducing himself as Paul to defending himself as Paul the apostle. And, and it, if we could all uh, you know, take a, a, a crash course in Greek and look at the Greek here, what we'd realize is that the, the letter actually says, Paul, apostle, not from men, but from God. Two words, and then Paul's defending who he is and who has sent him. Paul, right away here, is starting into a defense of his ministry. Now, there were certainly, if we think about this, many who would preach the gospel. There are many who might have been sent by other apostles or or sent out by other churches, or maybe many who just decided they had come to know Christ and we need to tell others about Jesus as well. And that is a good thing. But that is a different thing than having apostolic authority. And what Paul is distinguishing here is, I'm preaching the gospel, but I'm preaching the gospel as an apostle sent by God through Jesus Christ himself. He's not just a man teaching about God or preaching about what has come to pass. He has been directly called by God to speak the words of the gospel. I was thinking about this as a 
As an oldest child, I perhaps bear uh, more blame uh, in this regard than others of my, my siblings, but I was thinking about a situation where siblings might be uh, hanging out, and an older one comes to a younger sibling and says, hey, you need to set the table for dinner. Now, a couple things could be happening there. It could be me as the older sibling saying, hey, younger sibling, you need to go set the table for dinner. And, and the younger sibling might say, well, okay, that's a good idea that you had. That might be your opinion. Uh, why don't you go set the table? You, know, you can see the, the, the exchange that, that might occur. But the situation is very different if the older sibling comes and says, mom told me to tell you that you need to set the table. Right? There's, there's a difference in that exchange there. And what Paul seems to be saying here is, look, I wasn't just sent from other men. This isn't just my opinion. I'm not just here from other churches. This is not just a good thing to do. Christ Jesus has commissioned me, has called me as an apostle to tell you the gospel. And that is what Paul is saying here. Now, uh, it's interesting. Paul starts out, third word of the text here, and he's defending his ministry. Now, I know how I tend to react when someone uh, attacks me or says something bad about me. And uh, usually, if, if there's anything that underplays you know, my, my self-perceived awesomeness, I'm quick to start defending myself. And I want to build up who, who I am and how dare you consider me less than who I really am. And, and, and I hope I'm not the only one who likes to rush to my defense. And so it, it can kind of seem here like, wow, Paul, you really took this personally when they started attacking you here. You really, you really thought this was a big deal when people started cutting you down. Did you really need to rush to your own defense this quickly? It could be a, a way we might read this here, but that's not what's happening. I want us to see why it is so significant and so important for Paul to defend his calling as an apostle commissioned by God in his ministry to the churches of Galatia. See, Paul here is not actually concerned with himself. He's not concerned about how people view him except as it bears weight on how they will accept the gospel that he's preaching. Paul's concern is not with his reputation, but with the authenticity and the truth of the message that he's been given by Christ Jesus. And this is immediately evident in verse 8. Uh, we're skipping down a ways, but in verse 8, when Paul says, Look, if anyone, whether it be an angel from heaven or me myself, preach another gospel to you, let him be accursed. Paul is willing to throw himself in with this lot. Look, if I come preaching another gospel to you, then let myself be accursed. He's not worried about his reputation, himself, what people think of him. He's worried about, he's concerned with the message of the gospel, the true word that was given to him by Christ Jesus. For Paul, the only reason his ministry and his words are important are not how people will view him, but because they've come from God and they are the words of life, the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Dr. Riken uh, has commented on this passage this way. He said, what is at stake here is not Paul's reputation, but the Galatians' salvation. That is what is at stake in Paul defending his ministry. So if we're going to understand the fact that Paul's immediate defense of his ministry here in the first verse of Galatians really is all about the gospel, it makes sense then that Paul would almost immediately begin to describe the true gospel. And if we look down here, particularly to verses 3 through 5, as a part of his introduction, 
Paul is going to give a summary of the gospel that he's preached. And it makes sense. Paul's saying there is a distorted gospel out there. There is a different gospel that's being proclaimed. And so Paul's immediate interest is to remind the Galatians what is the heart, what is the essence of the true gospel. If there's a distorted gospel you're being pulled away by, what's the truth? What, what is the, the gospel that needs to hold our heart and our affections? And so if we look at these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, uh, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Again, it's, it's interesting that grace to you in peace is a standard greeting that Paul uses, but he can barely even finish the standard greeting before he's beginning to defend and to reiterate the true gospel here. I want to take a minute um, to look at this. I think in verses 4 and 5 we have at least three pieces of the gospel. And, and these two verses, I think, in such a, a simple but beautiful and glorious way summarize the hope we have in Christ Jesus. And so beginning in uh, the beginning of verse 4, the gospel begins with Jesus Christ. It begins with Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. And immediately at the heart of this statement come truths that are at the core of our understanding of the gospel. First, it is, it is evident in this statement if, that if Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, it is immediately evident that we are sinners. We are sinners mired in a pit of our own self-driven efforts. We are sinners mired in an attempt to please ourselves, to do things our way, to do the things that we want to do, to do the things that will please us, not realizing that this feeling of freedom of doing what we want to do is actually a slavery that leaves us incapable of glorifying God, incapable of finding true meaning and purpose in life, and incapable of living in the joy that our God has created us for. A life of sin that leads to brokenness, to pain, that eventually overwhelms us as people so busily striving to make our way through life in our sinful condition. And as broken, rebellious, lost sinners, there's not any good example, no heroic act, no leader who can just sort of walk in front of us and lead us out of our sin. We don't need a good example. We don't need a person to follow. We don't need a person to make a heroic act on our behalf. We need someone who will die in our place. And that is what these few verses remind us, that Jesus Christ gave himself in the place of us for our sins. He took the brokenness, the rebellion, the lostness. He entered the miry pit that was our broken sinfulness and died there the punishment that we deserved. And so our only hope is this God, this Jesus, to die for our sins. It's interesting, this phrase, for our sins, is a phrase that in its language is very similar to the language that was used for the sacrificial system all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, there was to be this sacrifice for your sins, a sacrifice for the sins of your people. And, and the phrase has echoes all throughout the sacrifices that the Jewish people were called on to make. And yet the statement here becomes the core and the heart of our New Testament hope, 
that Jesus would die for our sins is the heart of the gospel. That he would bear the consuming fire of God's just wrath. His wrath that is justly meant and intended and needs to be poured out in our sin is instead poured out and emptied on Christ Jesus on the cross. This is the first statement that is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. But if we think about this glorious news of the gospel, Paul immediately goes on to to expound upon what impact this news of the gospel has, what all is at play when we talk about Jesus Christ dying for our sins. And I think this is very helpful. He says that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us out of this present evil age. Now, if you do a quick thinking back over the different presentations of the gospel that you've heard, what you'll probably realize very quickly is that the gospel is generally presented in terms of the future, more so than the present. Maybe you, like me, have heard people standing out on street corners with signs that have pictures of of estranged and, and bent figures burning in fiery hell, and they say things like, if you believe in Jesus, you will be able to be in heaven in your future, not in hell. Or, if you want to go to heaven instead of hell, you should believe the gospel. And that is true. The gospel is gloriously about our future hope with God forever. But it's not just a future hope. The gospel is not just something that will start affecting your life in the future when we die and we decide where we're going to go. The gospel is something that rescues us from this present evil age now that has impact on our lives now, that rescues our hearts, our souls, our lives from brokenness now. If we understand this phrase, Paul frequently divides all of history into two ages, which he terms the present age and the age to come. And the present age is a term Paul uses to talk about this world and its sinful patterns and its sinful enslavement and and all that, that Satan is wielding and reigning over is this age. In the age to come, he refers to the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God is bringing to reign with his people. But see, the glorious news of the gospel is that this age to come isn't just future anymore. Because Christ Jesus, when he died and rose again and called his people to come to him through faith, has already inaugurated this future reign of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is is here. It is open. It is available. Yes, not in its fullness, We still wait for that final day. But the kingdom of God is available to God's people through Christ Jesus. And so when we entrust ourselves to Christ through faith, we are being transferred out of this present evil age into the age to come. Meaning that your life now, when you have placed your hope and in your faith in Christ Jesus, is a part of the kingdom of God. You have been pulled from the evil age with all of its wrath, with all of its destruction, with all of its brokenness, with all of the the mire that we are trapped in and brought into the glorious hope of Christ now. We live now. We wake up in the morning now in light of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And that impacts who we are now. We are no longer, as Paul says in Ephesians, citizens of this world. We are right now citizens of heaven. We belong now to Christ Jesus and his kingdom. This is a present hope and a present glory that we have in Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. 
to deliver us from this present evil age, from sin and the brokenness that we might have hope in Christ. But all of this is according to the will of our God and Father. See, finally here we're told that this plan of salvation was not a a random act. It was not some last-ditch effort that God came up with to rescue his people. The plan, the plan of, of God through history was not a plan that started one way and, oops, Adam sinned, better take a right turn, kind of come up with something else. And, oops, Israel failed, time to take a left turn and try something else. The history of God's work and God's people is not a history of trial and error. The history of God's work of redemption is God working all things according to his will. We heard this morning from Dr. Rogers that Christ Jesus himself came according to the Father's will, in agreement with the Father's will, laying down his own life as the accomplishment of this will, willingly, gladly, as the core of his work, that he might redeem us from this present evil age. All of this is happening according to the will of God our Father. I think John Calvin so rightly concludes from this, that if the will of our God and Father is to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us, what greater statement do we have about the love of our God, the depth and the breadth of the love that our God and Father has for you and for me, that this would be His will, that He send His Son to eat up, to consume the, his own wrath through death for our hope. See, this is the glorious gospel that Paul is now prepared to defend. Paul is ready to write this letter in light of this truth, that Jesus Christ in his death alone is the cornerstone, foundation of our salvation, all according to the will of our God and Father, to the glory of our God and Father. Well, this is the gospel that Paul is prepared to defend, if this is the gospel that Paul's ministry is proclaiming against this distorted gospel that, that Christ would need something else, that there would be something that needed to be added on to the work of Christ. If this is the, the truth of the glorious gospel, I want to spend a few moments with you reflecting on these verses and what we take away from this presentation of Paul's ministry and Paul's gospel. Three things in particular that I think that we come away from this passage. First, as we think about Paul's defense of his ministry, we learn that the message defines the messenger and not the other way around. The message defines the messenger and not the other way around. See, the message of the gospel is not dependent upon the personalities of the people who are preaching it. Whether Paul preaches it whether an angel from heaven preaches it, whether some uh, person from any church around preaches it, the messenger is not the one who defines the truth or the falsehood of what's being preached. It is the truth itself, the message itself, that is the determiner of our truth and our hope. I think this is important for us for at least two reasons. First, it's very poignant as a reminder to us if you flip on your news, as you're likely to do at any point, and begin to see the files and files and example after example of, of men who are proclaiming the gospel around our country and yet who end up themselves committing sins and being pointed out as men who are not speaking with integrity. 
It won't take you long if you try to come up with a laundry list of men who have proclaimed the gospel who have then been shown to be full of sin and to have been full of a lack of integrity. Perhaps you read in the last week about a, a very prominent, well-known pastor of, of uh, a, a church out west with some ten to 20,000 members across uh, several, several campuses who has agreed to step aside for a time over charges from a group of former assistant pastors of anger, arrogance, abuse of power, and other such sins that are hampering his ministry. Or perhaps in in the last few months, you may have read about uh, a church who's come under fire for using $200,000 of its tithe money to purchase 11,000 copies of its senior pastor's book in order to get its book on the bestseller list. Or perhaps you would have followed the ministry of a, of a well-known pastor who in the last year has been uh, publicized and revealed that he was having an affair with a nanny who was watching these children. And the list could go on and on and on. The messengers, the proclaimers, the people who are standing up to preach the truth of the gospel, and sin does its work. However, the gospel does not take its truth or power from the personality of the messenger. It may be easy for us to look at these examples and say, huh, what kind of a gospel do they preach? Clearly, the thing that they're preaching shouldn't be listened to. But what Paul reminds us here is, whether it's Paul, whether it's an angel, whether it's another preacher, what matters is the truth of the message that has been guaranteed and proven to be the truth, has been proven the accepted and presented truth of God when he raised his own son from the dead. It does not rely on the morality or the ability to persuade of those who proclaim it. So we say that on, the other, on one side. On the other side, though, if the message is what matters, if it's the message, not the messenger, that is so important to us, then certainly our task, our call, is to surround ourselves with this message, to surround ourselves with the truths of the gospel. Know the gospel. Read the gospel. Seek the gospel. Hear the gospel. Speak the gospel. Soak ourselves in the gospel so that the glorious truths of what Christ has done for us might wash over us and might fill our minds and define our minds and shape our hearts and shape our actions. So it's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that forms and shapes all of who we are and what we are called to. See, if our minds are shaped by, washed by, soaked in the message of the true gospel, then if, as the situation was here in Galatia, men were to come and trouble us by preaching a distorted gospel or a false gospel, we will be steeped in the truth of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So love the Word of God. Love the preaching of Christ Jesus. And may we never let life and its busyness crowd out our opportunities to surround ourselves and soak ourselves in this glorious message, this all-satisfying, joyous message of Christ Jesus. We learn this from Paul's defense of his ministry. Second, I think this passage points out to us the very subtle nature of lies and falsehood. Remember who these Judaizers, who these false teachers are. These people who are distorting the gospel are not people who are denying Christ Jesus. False teaching included Christ. It was spoken by people who were affirming Christ. 
but we're adding things on top of Christ. Yes, Christ, they said, but also the Mosaic Law. It's been said that the greatest danger to the church is not the anti-gospel from outside the church, but the false gospel from inside the church. I think we learn here that Christ is all-important, but just because someone is saying the name of Christ or teaching the name of Christ, we need to continue to look at what else is being presented. Tim Keller, in his commentary on this passage, lists three common additions to Christ that the church commonly falls into. He says, first, the church often falls into the danger of adding to the work of Christ our own surrendering of ourselves, our own surrendering our will, such that the emphasis sometimes seems to fall on how great our faith is instead of how great the one who we place our faith in is. You see the difference. Is it Christ's death plus our strong, willing, committed life to take hold of and run strongly after this Savior? Or is it Christ alone and, O Lord, help us in our weakness? Another example would be requiring faith in Christ plus good works. And that's certainly right along the lines of what these Judaizers were teaching. Yes, believe in Christ, but also do. Are there certain things that we're required to do in addition to Christ? Whether it be loving our neighbor or faithful obedience or continued following of certain commands. Or, thirdly, another very common addition to Christ are certain practices or customs or or laws or rules that Christians might do which become a determiner or a requirement for salvation. See, if we ever hear... Believe in Christ and do this. But if you're not doing this, you're not truly a Christian. We need to be careful. Now, I want to also add the the cautionary note. Galatians is going to come back to the fact that if we trust Christ, our life will be changed. Our life will be different when we meet Christ Jesus. So these comments are not meant to say our actions don't matter at all. But these comments are meant to say that if any of these additions become a condition of our acceptance before God, You will be accepted before God if you believe in Christ and then we are hearing very possibly a distorted gospel. But of course, we need to look at our own hearts as well. See, do we ever find ourselves saying things like, I really need to do this because people would expect it of me because I say I'm a Christian or do I need to do this because this is what Christians do or this is what my Christian family always did or I need to do this because and we we wrap this this tradition or this this set of laws and expectations and say well this is what I need to do or else or else God's not going to accept me or do we ever find ourselves facing a sin with such a load of guilt and self-hatred thinking that we can pile on ourselves this, this burden of guilt and self-hatred and we can punish ourselves enough that God will finally realize that we're sincere. See, that also is not trusting in the full sufficiency of Christ Jesus. And saying, well, we can, we can self-afflict ourselves a little bit here and begin to atone for some of what we have done. That too may be an indication that we are not relying on Christ Jesus and His sacrifice alone. 
None of this is to deny true repentance. None of this is to deny true guilt in the face of our sin. None of this is to deny what God calls us to do. But all of it is to say that the only object of our faith, the only object of our hope, the whole of the gospel is this. Christ died for me, a sinner. And he rose again as the only one who can rescue me from the sin that I find myself in, from this present evil age that I am enslaved by. See, once this happens, yes, our life will be changed. We will act differently. But only a faith, only a reliance, fully focused on Christ Jesus is the gospel, the true gospel, that Paul, an apostle through Christ Jesus, has proclaimed us. And finally, and very briefly, we'll just note Paul's comment in verse 5. Paul's comment in verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, the more that we are thrown back upon Christ Jesus, the more our Savior is alone our hope, the more we will continue to echo this statement that Paul makes, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Does your heart wake up feeling this? Does your mind go to bed pondering this? Do you go through your day speaking, declaring, singing, praising God with these words and this hope? If not, if not, rest our eyes back on Christ Jesus. Turn our eyes back on Christ Jesus. Because when we truly understand the depth of our sin and the free offer of Christ's death for our sins, we cannot help but shout this over and over to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great note to come to the table of our Lord together on. Let me close us here in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you that he gave himself in our place to rescue us from this evil age, to bring us, to restore our relationship with you. To you, God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.